Our scripture reading today is from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to to Christ. Christ. Thank you again, Nina. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. And I'm really, really glad to be uh, with you. I I may be the first pastor who's ever gone to James 5 for a Mother's uh, Day-related message, but uh, part of that is because we've actually been in a series on the book of James, and this is actually the second to last message in that series. And uh, I guess I'll start with with a little bit of a confession. Um, Being a pastor on Mother's Day always creates a, a bit of an inner conflict for me as I approach this specific moment of preaching because uh, there are really two angles that, that, that I approach Mother's Day from. One is as the family guy whose uh, mother is now struggling with, uh, with uh, Alzheimer's, and uh, this year is especially critical for us uh, as her memory fades to uh, capture and celebrate and, and recall memories with her and, and, and give her the honor that is due to her as uh, such a, a wonderful invested mother really all of our lives. And, and of course, I'm married to a mother uh, and uh, our children who understand this on most days understand that they hit the jackpot uh, in the mother category. And so, so that's one angle uh, that, that I approach the Mother's Day story from, and the other is as a pastor. Uh, and as I stand in front of you, I recognize that there are a lot of mother stories represented here. There are beautiful ones to be celebrated. There are broken ones that, that, that sometimes tempt people not to go to any church at all because of fresh reminders. See, for some, Mother's Day is a day uh, that, that, that brings memories of care and kindness and sacrifice, and for others, it opens a wound about things like uh, infertility, uh, miscarriages, estranged relationships, a shame narrative, perhaps, uh, perhaps a separation that's happened from something like tension in the relationship or divorce or, or separation by death. And so, want to approach this moment with both the spirit of celebration uh, for, you know, those with the happy mother stories and also a spirit of compassion with those whose mother stories are more, are more complicated and, and uh, elicit uh, struggling moments. 
And uh, the more I looked into this text, the more I started to sense that maybe this is actually one of the most perfect texts for a day like today in all of the Bible because it deals just like the Psalms do with the full range of human emotion, with both triumph and loss, with with both uh, suffering and sorrow, and also joy and exhilaration and celebration. And, and, And what we have here as Uh, James, the uh, man who actually shared a mother with Jesus Christ, what we have from him is teaching on prayer, which demonstrates to us that we have a good, good father who loves as a mother does. He comforts us with his love, and also not in spite of his love, But because of his love, sometimes he will transform us as his children by introducing discomfort into our lives. And so James talks about three different contexts for prayer. If you're suffering, recognize that God holds you and is with you in it. If you're sick, recognize that God is your healer and he's the one who raises not only the sick but the dead. And if you're cheerful… It's an occasion, it's just one more occasion to turn your eyes in thanksgiving to the giver of all good things. And so I'm going to approach the text text from from three specific headings, each of which represent a different facet of the human experience. One is when you feel happy, another is when you are afflicted, and then the final one is when you feel shortchanged by God. So when you feel happy… This is how James disciples us or teaches us to walk and live our lives and and, and the perspective that he says we need to be carrying when we're cheerful, when things feel like they're going well. Is any of you cheerful? Let that person sing praise. What he's after here is this. In good times, perhaps it's the most critical time, in good times, to turn our attention from God and to put checkpoints in front of us so we do not forget that He is the giver of the gifts. Why do we want to turn our attention to God when the things around us are going really well? Here's the reason. To keep ourselves from mistaking the gifts that we receive from God for God. In other words, implicit here is a warning not to let the gifts become the giver to you, not to let signs of the goodness of God and symbols of the goodness of God in our lives replace the place of Jesus in our lives. Because when we do, when we take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, when we demote a gift of God in the hierarchy of our loves, or when we we promote a a gift of God and demote Jesus, demote God in the hierarchy of our loves, everything falls apart. This was true all the way back in the beginning, an early in history mother story, Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, like many women, struggled for many years with infertility and and a longing to have a child. 
And she reaches a certain point of exasperation where she reaches out to her husband Abraham and says, give me children or I will die. And then she turns to him and says, look, God has not come through for me. He has not given me a child. And so it's time to take matters in our own hands. What I want to do is give to you my servant, Hagar, as a surrogate. I want you to sleep with her, and I want her to have a child, and that child will be as my child. And in taking matters into her own hands, she essentially destroyed the family system. She was disobedient to God by by not only allowing, but insisting that, that, that her husband become intimate with another woman. And then when she gets the results that she's after, and Hagar does give birth to a child named Ishmael through Abraham, instead of becoming a nurturing mother to that child, she becomes resentful, she becomes a shamer, and eventually she banishes Hagar and Ishmael from the home. So I was listening to a, uh, a marriage and family counselor and parenting counselor talk about the nature of child abuse some time back, and, 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 and this counselor said something just incredibly jarring to me. She said this, people do not abuse their children because they love their children too little. When people abuse their children, they are abusing them because they love them too much. And that's a little bit of a play on words. But what she was saying is, when you turn your children into your Jesus, when you take action to reverse the flow of the umbilical cord and demand from your children the nurture and parenting and safety and control that you desire, it wrecks it for everyone. Just as was the case for Sarah, it wrecked it for her. Sarah's plan wrecked Sarah. And then there's another teaching in Ephesians chapter 5 when the Apostle Paul gives sort of the seminal biblical teaching on marriage and what marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. Interesting that the two most significant teachers in the history of the world on the subject of marriage were single men, Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, in in teaching husbands what it means to be husbands and wives, what it means to be wives, right in the middle of the teaching says this, just so we're clear, I'm not really talking about marriage here as much as I am talking about Jesus Christ and the church, Christ and His bride. You see, marriage between a man and a woman at its best takes on sacramental features. It becomes a sign of something else, of something bigger, of something to which this marriage between him, a him and a her, will one day give way. Do you know that the Bible says that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no marriage and no giving in marriage. Every husband and wife in this room will serve as best man and maid of honor to your spouse, and you will release your spouse into the hands of Jesus, the bridegroom, to his bride, the church, of which we are are part. What is now face-to-face will eventually become side-to-side as we unite together 
male and female, married and single and divorced, believers in Jesus Christ, uniting side to side, loving the bridegroom as his bride. If this sounds mysterious to you, that's the way it's supposed to sound, which is why Paul put right in the middle of this teaching on marriage, this is a profound mystery when I'm teaching about marriage, but what I'm talking about is Christ and the church. What he's after is this, having a good mother-child relationship or desiring one, or having a good marriage or desiring one, these are all pointers. They're significant, beautiful things to celebrate and and to, to delight in, but to never hang your hat on them, to never look to these temporary things to be your Jesus. Because every counterfeit Savior will let you down and will make you hurt. Every person, every place, everything that brings you happiness, in other words, James is saying, treat it as a sign and not as your ultimate destination. You ever been on a road trip? Let's, let's say you're going to, I don't know, North Carolina because you love the mountains. And, you know, you, you, you run into all these mile marker signs, you know, North Carolina, you know, Asheville, you know, 180 miles, Asheville, 20 miles. And the closer and closer you get, the more excited you get. But you never stop and take selfies with the sign because that would be silly, right? Because the sign only points to your destination. So what James is saying is don't, don't stop at temporal things. Look at the temporal things as, as a conduit through which to view your ultimate destination, Jesus. Because He is the ultimate thing to which every good thing in your life points. Your money points to the fact that God is your everlasting wealth and your everlasting security. Your success is a pointer to the fact that God is your ultimate glory. Romance is a pointer to the fact that Jesus is your ultimate spouse. Popularity is a pointer to the fact that God is your affirmation. He is the one who pronounces the well done and, 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 and the benediction over you. Or a good father or mother relationship. He is the good, good father who loves you as a mother does. The good things cannot become ultimate things. They are pointers to something even bigger and better and more wonderful and more good. Every good gift that comes from God also points back to God. Enjoy those gifts, but don't hang your hat on them. This is why C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory talked about how we are all half-hearted creatures who settle for too little. We're far too easily satisfied, he says. We flirt around with things like drink and sex and ambition like a child who demands to continue playing in a mud puddle when when that child's parents is saying, let's take a holiday at the ocean. You think this mud is where life is to be found? Let's go to the ocean. I'll show you what real life is. And so what he's saying is that even the very, very best things in life, in comparison to the destination, God himself is as a mud puddle. Don't settle for something that's a sign of the ultimate reality of of the love that God has for you. So that's when you feel happy. How about when you're afflicted? Specifically, James talks about when we're sick, when the body is not cooperating with the mind. 
He says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church for prayer and anointing with oil. If he sins, it will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so this whole, you know, encouragement to confess sins and, and, and for that to be a facet of the community life that we share together, it frees us to be known and it frees us to know each other but there's something even more significant in this. It frees us for self-reflection. Any suffering, any sickness is a time actually to step back, to stop, to be still, and to reflect on the condition and state of our hearts. Another thing that's important from Scripture is that not all sickness is because of sin. You know, there's an occasion when, 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 when there's a man who is born blind and there are people around Jesus saying, Whose fault is it, Jesus, that this man was born blind? Was it him who committed the sin, or was it his parents, or was it somebody else? And Jesus said, no. Actually, this affliction in his life is something that's going to lead to more and more people giving glory to God. You just watch. Give it time. You just watch. Or Job, who, who is you know, sort of the consummate sufferer, who experiences all kinds of disaster in his life, including sickness that gave him sores from head to toe, is also at that time simultaneously referred by God, referred to by God as the most godly person in the world. So just because you're sick does not mean that you've done something wrong. The Apostle Paul has a thorn in his flesh, and what does he do? He prays three times that God would remove it, and the thorn stays. Another significant uh, thing that James mentions here is, is the, the, the practice and the liturgy of anointing with oil and praying over somebody. And this is significant maybe for reasons why we wouldn't understand. Yes, it does have a medicinal quality to it. That's actually uh, one of the things that they used medicinally for the medical arts back in those days when they didn't have all the technologies and, and pharmaceuticals that we have today. They used oil and they put oil on an injury and it had a healing effect. But there's something even more than this, because anointing with oil was something that was always done when somebody was being set apart to participate in something significant that would move the kingdom of God forward. When Aaron becomes the priest of Israel, they, they, they anointed him with oil. When David became the king of Israel, they anointed him with oil. You know, even Jesus says in, in his first public sermon in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I've been set apart. I'm being kick-started into, into, into doing something significant that will move the kingdom of God forward. And this is part of why James says, if you're sick, go to the elders and get anointed with oil because it may be, not in spite of this, but, but even because of and through this illness, through this affliction, that God experiences an even greater glory through your life into the lives of others than He would if you were completely healthy. This is why God said no to Paul's prayer when Paul prayed three times, please remove the thorn from my flesh, and God said no. And the reason was to keep Paul from becoming conceited. It's right there in 2 Corinthians 12. The higher virtue of gospel humility 
mattered more and carried more weight in the eyes of a good, good father than a comfy, cozy, physical existence for Paul. It was part of how God set Paul apart. There are promises here, too, that the person who is prayed for and anointed with oil will be healed, but it's also very important to to note the connection here with the resurrection language. The Lord will raise that person up, which means there are a number of ways that God will bring healing, but it is always a cop-out that God never asked us to give Him. God never asked us for the loophole, Lord, if it's your will, heal your child. God never asks us for that loophole. No, it says that the sick person will be healed, will be raised up. This can happen in our lifetime. This can happen in miraculous ways. I've seen it. Many of you have. Many of you have participated in that kind of healing. But even if the thorn remains in the flesh, as it did for the Apostle Paul, there's a resurrection that is to come where Jesus makes all things new, including the body, which will become like the resurrected body. So don't ever, ever, ever pray for a Christian, Lord, if it's your will, heal them. God does not need that loophole from us. Pray, Lord, according to your will, heal this person, because we know that it's your will to heal, and and therefore we know that you're going to heal. But in the meantime, understand that it is most often through our weakness that God's power is made manifest through us. Johnny Erickson taught a, you know, in, in a recent talk and, and, and uh, piece that she wrote on her blog, she was reflecting on the disability that she's had ever since she was a teenager. I think she's somewhere in her 60s now, and she's been in a wheelchair ever since uh, a diving accident she had uh, as a teenager, and, and she, she, you know, is living with a quadriplegic uh, condition, paralyzed from the neck down. Here's what she said. Here's her reflection. Number one, I can't wait until the new heaven and the new earth comes where I can put my wheelchair in a corner and mock it and laugh at it and, 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 and say, you gave me a lot of trouble, but no more. But the other things that she, thing that she says is sometimes, for the here and now, sometimes God allows what He hates in order to accomplish what He loves. Can we receive that? Is there proof of that? The cross of Jesus is proof of that. Where the worst betrayal and injustice in the history of the world happened, when goodness and truth and beauty himself was put to death, God allowed what he hated in order to accomplish what he loves, and that is the saving of many lives, including yours and mine. You know, Kierkegaard, about his foot injury, said, because of the thorn in my foot, I am able to spring higher than anyone who has sound feet. Or here's another one that I got from Russ Ramsey this past week uh, from Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard says, I had been my whole life a bell, but I never knew it. I never knew that I was a bell until that moment when I was lifted and struck. Sometimes it is the suffering that happens, the strike that comes into our lives and assaults our physical existence that actually brings out the music that's always been there 
This is what happened with Johnny. This is what happened with the Apostle Paul. It is certainly what happened with Jesus at the cross. It's what happened with Kierkegaard, Annie Diller, so many others. So that's the perspective when you're afflicted. How about when you feel shortchanged? This is where James beautifully takes us to solidarity. Let's talk about Elijah. Elijah, he says, was a man who had a nature just like ours, just like ours. Yeah, when, 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 when we think about Elijah, if you've read the Bible through and you're familiar with the Elijah story, probably your first you know, thought goes to 1 Kings chapter 18 where, where you know, as, as one man he prays to Yahweh uh, uh, to defeat 450 false prophets of the false god Baal. But one part of the Elijah story that we're often quick to forget is the story that happens before the, the set-apart moment. And that is where Elijah expresses his deep disappointment with God over the circumstances and hardships that are happening in his life. Before the prophets of Baal were slain at Mount Carmel, Elijah, we find him depressed. We find him cynical. We find him in, in the state of being a persecuted refugee. When Queen Jezebel, whose name has now become associated with, with adultery and prostitution because of how wicked she was and how much she had, she had strayed from and betrayed the will and ways and heart of God, Jezebel is after Elijah, and, and, and she will stop at nothing to finish him off. And Elijah knows this, and he cries out to God, and he accuses God almost, and he, he, sa he says, I'm alone. There's nobody in the world who serves you or loves you except me, so what are you going to do about it? And what God does is he first responds by giving Elijah a very small glimpse in, in the form of a still, small voice of himself. Not spectacular, very ordinary. Maybe something as ordinary as opening your Bible and reading what's in there to be brought back to what's true. But then the second thing that God does is he sends the angel of the Lord to him and says, really, Elijah, you think you're the only one who's faithful? You think you're the only one who's loyal to me? There are still over 7,000 souls in the nation of Israel who have not bowed the knee to Jezebel or her God. In other words, there are unseen realities in the midst of your suffering that you're not able to see. And one of those unseen realities, Elijah, is that I love you more than you love you. And that my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, I can be trusted even in this. This was the case in the Job story. You know, James mentioned Job in the, the text that we dealt with last week. The Job story is this. All Job and his wife see are, are, are disaster and suffering and terrorism and, and sickness. That's all they are able to see with their naked eye. But what we get to see is what's going on in the cosmic invisible world where there is a war being waged between good and evil, between God and the Satan. And, and what we discover as we read the narrative is that, yes, God is permitting certain evils to happen and be perpetrated by the enemy of Job's soul, but only for one reason. He's giving the devil only enough rope with which to hang himself. And that's what happens. And good triumphs over evil. 
And the latter part of Job's existence is blessed, it says, twice as much as the first half. You know, Paul says, Lord, remove this throne or, or this thorn from my flesh. Remove the thorn. And God's best yes to Paul is a repeated no, sir. Imagine it might have been texts like this that inspired Garth Brooks to sing, Sometimes I Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. See, because this is what wisdom really is. This is from Tim Keller. Wisdom is what we would have asked God for if we knew everything that God knows and if we saw everything that God sees. That's what wisdom is. Sometimes the things that we're begging God for are actually the worst things, would be the worst things for Him to grant to us. So there was a short, uh, there was a skit on Comedy Central some time back, and, and, and it was about this boy and his father, and, and it was the boy's birthday, and the boy wants a 44 Magnum. And he will stop at nothing to get that 44 Magnum, and he, he whines and he complains, and his father says, no, you can't have a 44 Magnum, and, and he starts pitching a tantrum, and, and the father looks at him and says, you need to wait until you're 10. <laughs> 44 Magnum is a very dangerous, life-threatening pistol, by the way, for context there. It would be wrong for any father to give a young child a 44 magnum. Just like it would be wrong of God to say yes, absolutely, to everything that we ask Him for. We have to trust that He loves us more than we love us. We have to trust that when God says this thing that you're longing for, you are far too easily satisfied. Compared to what I have waiting for you, compared to what's right here in me before your face, this thing, this person, this place that you're pining after, that you're demanding that I give to you, is as if it were a mud puddle, and I will stop at nothing to get you to the sea, to get you to the ocean that I have to, for you so that you can see the difference, so that you can see the contrast between my plans to prosper you and your plans to ruin you, which you aren't even aware of. And if I have to drag you from this mud puddle to this ocean, I will do that, not in spite of the fact that I love you, but because of the fact that I love you, because I'm a good father who loves you like a mother. I will nurture you, and I will discomfort and disquiet and disrupt you, all because I love you. Do you want to safeguard your prayers from foolishness? Just praise Scripture. Get less creative with your prayers. Stop waiting for a word on high when the word on high has already been given. And just a few months ago, our, our, our choir, CPC's choir, got to partner with R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries to give this magnificent concert at the Skirmerhorn. And they asked Dr. Sproul, who's like this decorated, you know, you know theologian, been a, been a, a you know, world-class theologian for longer than I've been alive, which is a really, really long time. And they asked him to close in prayer. And what does he do? He gets up there and I'm thinking, oh, I can't wait for this rhetorical flourish that R.C. Sproul is about to come up with. I'm going to write it down. And what does he do? He gets up and he says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he continued to, to verbatim quote the psalm that he was praying from. And then he said, amen. Nothing created creative, nothing added, nothing interpretive, simply praying Scripture. In that moment, I, I recognize maybe for the first time in my life as a Christian 
the more mature you become, the less creative you become in the way that you pray to God. And the more anchored in what the Scriptures tell you and promise you about God, about you, about the nature of the world, the more your prayers are anchored in that truth that's already been revealed, that's already been dispensed to form you, the better and more life-giving and beautiful your prayers will be. And so when you feel short-changed, as with Elijah, Job, the beloved Paul, and the beloved Garth Brooks, when you feel short-changed, Never forget, God always, always loves you more than you love you. And how do we know this? How do we know that He always loves us more than we love us? Because of the way that He birthed us. Our husband Jesus. Remember the profound mystery teaching about marriage and Christ in the church? Our husband Jesus is also as the mother who gave birth to us. He died on the delivery table. He bled out on the delivery table in order to give life evermore to us. The Son who was delivered by the Virgin Mary delivered us through His blood so that we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we have the Father's maternal embrace. Isaiah 49 says this, Can a mother forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And then Psalm 27.10, Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And what's our visible, tangible representation of this? A table that acts something like a rehearsal dinner that signals the marriage and consummation that's to come at the wedding feast of the Lamb in the new heaven and the new earth for every daughter and son of Jesus Christ, whether married, single, once again single. The moment you put your trust in Christ, you will never be more married than you are in that moment. You will never be more a cherished and beloved child than you are the moment you put your trust in the Father's love.